welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. The Adventures with Grammy LLC and the Adventures with Grammy podcast have exciting news to share. We are sponsoring an essay contest for children ages 5 to 16 to help them honor their grandparents. The contest coincides with two summertime grandparent celebrations, Gorgeous Grandma Day and Grandparents Day. The grandchildren can share their love for their grands by telling the world in 250 words or less why their grands, whether it's grandparents, grandmothers, or grandfathers, are grand. The Adventures with Grammy podcast will announce the winners during a special Grandparents Day episode that will be broadcast September 12th. Each of the winners will be invited to record his or her essay that will be heard on the podcast. The winning essays also will be available as a free downloadable PDF from the podcast website. The contest has two age categories, age 5 to 9 and ages 10 to 16. We will award prizes to the first, second, and third place winners in each category and to a grand prize winner. The contest is open to children who have a United States mailing address. Entries must be written in U.S. English and submitted electronically between July 23, 2021 and August 6, 2021. To learn more for the rules, a list of prizes, a list of sponsors, the contest overview, and the entry form, visit adventureswithgrammy.com forward slash podcast forward slash contest dot html. There will be a link in the show notes. Marsha Moran was a healthy, athletic, successful entrepreneur who never considered one day she might suffer from a stroke. But she did seven years ago, and it was devastating. Although now she is almost at full recovery, Marsha is not satisfied and continues to work toward 100% recovery. She has written about her journey back to physical fitness in her book, Stroke Forward, How to Become Your Own Healthcare Advocate, One Step at a Time. It is a beautifully written tribute to her determination and grit, her husband's abundant love for his wife, and a message of hope for the rest of us. Listen as Marsha shares her inspirational story of how she relearned to walk and talk and what she's doing now to help others impacted by strokes. So I'm 95% recovered. I am currently taking classes. I'm going to be a life and health coach for stroke survivors. And I'm doing my book on audiobook because up to 40% of stroke survivors have aphasia, so they can't read. 
So I think that's pretty important that I've not only overcome aphasia, but I've gotten to the point where I can read it out loud without error. Well, mostly without error. (laughs) So I'm really proud of myself. I am quite impressed with reading your book and learning about your determination and your absolute will to move forward in face of a tremendous medical emergency. Yeah. And one of the things that impresses me, I mean, one, I'm impressed with your resilience and your absolute determination. But the one of the themes that comes across to me from your book is the absolute love your husband, Jim, has for you. And I don't know if other people who've interviewed you or have heard your story, if they got that message. But being an, a medical health care advocate and a caregiver is an incredible job that often is underappreciated. And he just seemed to always step up and do 100, 110% of what you needed. And he seemed to anticipate your needs. And that that's what I found amazing. I was blessed to have someone who cared for me that way. I think I was really surprised that he took that much care of me. So every time I read about stroke and the caregivers that uh, come with it, you often hear about how you are in a relationship and suddenly you have a stroke and then the relationship is broken and you are divorced. I was kind of thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is not good for me. But he wasn't that way at all. He honestly took such good care of me. When I became an advocate for myself, he didn't step back all that well, (laughs) which is a good thing because sometimes I think I could do things which I really couldn't do that well. For example, even last year, we were walking up here in the mountains and there was a place to go down the hill. And he said, hold my hand. And I said, no, I'm going to do it myself. Now, I made it down okay, but I realized that he is still trying to take care of me, which is kind of sweet. Yes, that that is. It's very sweet. Tell us about some of the times where his advocacy was absolutely vital to your survival and to your recovery? I think the most important place was in the hospital because I couldn't speak. And so the doctors or nurses would say something and he would communicate back to them the thing that I really wanted. And I guess that's something that comes from being married for almost 30 years <laughs> because he always knew the way that I wanted it to be. When I was in the hospital, he was learning how to become an advocate at the time because we had no idea who thinks about becoming an advocate, really. Most of us don't. So something would come up. For example, when the kitchen sent up chicken for me to eat, and I was on a liquid diet, no one thought about saying, 
this doesn't look right. Send it back. So I took a bite and I choked. And he became aware of this is a really bad experience for Marsha because she could die. There's nothing I could do about it and she could die. So he realized at that point that he had to talk about or think about everything that came my way. I was feeling so sorry for you that your husband or the nurse had to help you go to the bathroom. It's like every bit of privacy and self-esteem, it seems like, when you're in the hospital, just gets thrown out with the garbage. I can't imagine my husband taking me to the bathroom. I just, I just can't imagine him doing that. But yet your husband, it came across in the book as if that was just as much of taking care of you as giving you a kiss or giving you a hug. Yeah. So when you have a massive stroke, everything goes away. You're down to your, I'm going to say bare minimum. If somebody has to help you go to the bathroom, you have to agree with it. Whether you like it or not, you have to agree. I was so stripped down that I realized that maybe I need to be stripped down most of the time. So when I speak to people now, I tell them the truth or I don't say anything at all because there's so much that's distorted when you're not telling the truth. We have not talked about the name of your book. Will you tell us the title of your book and what propelled you to write this? Why was writing this book so important? So it's called Stroke Forward, How to Become Your Own Healthcare Advocate One Step at a Time. And I decided to write the book when I was in the hospital. <laughs> I didn't know exactly what it would contain, but I knew that I guess I think things about things in a different way than probably most people. So you said that you felt sorry for me. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I was thinking, what can I do to be better every day? So I set a one-year goal where I was going to run the 5K. <laughs> I did it. That's impressive. <laughs> I didn't run it. But I said, okay, well, I'm better than I was, so I'm going to run the 5K on my second anniversary. Well, instead of running it, I fell down and dislocated my elbow. <laughs> I knew that I was going to write this book. And on the first anniversary of my stroke, I sat down and I wrote the first two paragraphs. See, the interesting thing about having aphasia is you can't think of a word. You can't think of how the word is spelled. So I spent a lot of time on thesaurus.com thinking of how to put the words together. So it took me a long time to write the book. When I came to the end, I realized that I had a couple treatments that are different from what most strokes uh, survivors get. And that's important to communicate because if they're not aware of these, then maybe they won't get the help that they need. 
And I would like to address that further in a few minutes. I like the book's layout. You tell your story and then you divide it into perspectives from the people who were part of your healing. And then you have a take action section. Tell me how that, that layout came about. I told my husband I would be grateful if he would write in my book. Because his perspective is different from my perspective. And I said the same thing to my sister. And she said, well, I'm not a great writer. And I said, I don't care. (laughs) I found that when I talked to them, when I talked to the doctors who wrote, when I talked to my friends who wrote, everyone who I talked to actually did write. And I think that's really important because everyone who was around me had a different perspective on what my stroke meant to them. Definitely interesting perspectives. And I like that you included that in the book. The other thing that you were talking about was the take action. My editor suggested chapters seemed uncompleted, if that makes sense. So I said, that's a really interesting idea. So I looked back and I said, I'm going to look at what we did that helped us. It's almost as if the take action is a summary of what each chapter is about. Yes. If somebody wants to just flip through the book quickly, if they just stopped and read each of those sections, they would have a pretty good understanding of what your book is. They might not get all the nuances of your determination and the trials that you went through but they certainly would get the essence of your book. I want to go back to what you said about being served chicken in the hospital and why that was so dangerous. Talk to us about the whole process of swallowing and what your diet was like those early weeks. So I had a liquid diet. It was like water with uh, like a psyllium seed or husk in it. So it was thick to drink. So drinking it, I would look forward. I'd take a sip, I would turn to my left, I would swallow, and then I would look forward again. And that w- was so that my left side is was the one that was actually working. I had been paralyzed on my right-hand side. And if you think about paralysis, you don't really think about all the paralysis actually goes all the way through your body. My right side wasn't working. When I had the chicken brought to me, I, The first thing I was thinking of is, ooh, that smells really good. (laughs) And so I took a bite and I swallowed it. Problem is that the right side wasn't working. I choked on it. 65% of people have dysphagia, which is the inability to swallow. That's after they've had a stroke. Most people get their ability to swallow back before they go home. So I went to rehab hospital. I was in the hospital for five days, then I went to the rehab hospital for two weeks. By the time I got to the rehab hospital, I could swallow soft things like scrambled eggs and things like that. Some people actually don't learn how to swallow again. And I I can't think about how awful that would be, not be able to, to eat again. I worked with students who had special needs for quite a while. And one of my students had a traumatic brain injury and he had that as well, where he could not swallow. He was tube fed for 
I'd say probably at least a year or two. He could, he learned to drink milk. He really enjoyed drinking chocolate milk. He still was toothed and he could only take sips at a time and had to be very deliberate. And often his mom or I or whoever was, you know, with him at the time, we would have to say swallow because mm-hmm. he would forget to swallow sometimes and, and he could choke as well. Yeah. You mentioned a technical term dysphagia, which is the difficulty with swallowing. You also, in your book, you talk about two other terms that I would like for you to define. One is aphasia and one is apraxia. Can you tell our listeners what those terms mean and how it, how they impacted you? So apraxia is the inability to move your muscles, right, to speak. And aphasia is the inability to communicate clearly. So I had, my stroke was in the Broca's area. And that means that I could hear what people were saying to me. But because of my aphasia, I couldn't speak back. That is... (laughs) really frustrating. So when I quote unquote got better, I still heard what people said and I probably couldn't speak back what I thought, but I could think of little words that were close enough to kind of get my point across. That kind of did it for me. The problem is I had kind of two people talking in my head at the same time. There's the answer that I wanted to give or the question I needed to ask. And there was the kind of question or answer that I had that I could kind of give, maybe. And I'm saying maybe because sometimes I couldn't talk at all. Sometimes I was tired and couldn't talk. Sometimes I was afraid and couldn't talk. Sometimes I I don't know what. I think I got better. And it was August of 2015. I was so stoked because I was all this much better. And I was going to get a job. So I sent out a couple of resumes, actually, I sent out four or five. And two people called me back and said they were going to interview me. I said, woohoo. So I practiced for the interview. The day came, I picked up the phone, I introduced myself, they said the first question that they were going to ask. And I said nothing. And that's a point where I realized there was a communication disorder, because I could speak at the conversational level but I couldn't speak deeper at what you would talk about during business. And nobody ever told me about that divide. And I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to reach that divide, but I was. Aphasia is really language processing. And I would imagine people might mistake your inability to communicate on a higher level Mm -hmm. as a lack of intelligence or that the stroke had impaired your intellect. But in reality, it was the aphasia that was preventing you from processing the thoughts that were in your mind. Very well said. Aphasia does not affect intellect at all. There is a corollary, at least I think there's a corollary, between dysphagia, the inability to swallow, and apraxia, because apraxia is deals with the motor formation of speech, like with how you put your tongue, how you purse your lips, how you breathe when you talk. So did 
the apraxia go hand in hand with dysphagia? Did you see them improving in cadence with each other or did the dysphagia go away first? Dysphagia was completely gone by the time I went home from the rehab hospital. The apraxia took much longer to take care of. I remember sitting in the dining room with a speech therapist. <laughs> she gave me Dr. Seuss books. <laughs> I love Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and she made me read them out loud. And her goal was to get me to say the words. Part of the problem for me was saying, I don't know if you can spell that, but or, or hear that, but the TH at the end of a word or things like that. So I could say maybe the first part of the word, but not the second half. So that took me a long time to get through. And eventually I did get through it, but it was probably nine months or so. So the ending sounds were where you had trouble, but the nonsense words in themselves, you could say the beginning, but not the ending. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I had made notes as I was reading your book and I want to mention something before I turn the page here. I have a very good friend who a couple of years ago had a stroke. Okay. She is an operating room nurse, and I'm very happy to say that she's, by her words, has made a full recovery. One of the things that she said to me, and it, it's just, I mean, she was emphatic about it, is if I ever have a stroke, that I have to rely on muscle memory to rebuild body functions. So for instance, she would say the alphabet and do exaggerated facial muscles, even if the muscles didn't work, like if the, that part of her body didn't work. In her mind, she rehearsed it over and over and over again. She relied on muscle memory to regenerate different circuitry in her brain or the same circuitry if it hadn't been killed, but just you know, stifled for a while to be able to reestablish normalcy. Is that something that you found? Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is neuroplasticity. Even if she wasn't moving, she was thinking about moving those parts. For me, probably the hardest part initially was to get up and move my leg and my arm. I would practice every day at home in the hospital in the rehab hospital, and then I went home. And so I had to practice every single day moving my leg over and over and over. And when we went out for a walk, finally, I was thinking, lift your leg up, move it forward, put your foot down, lift your leg up, move it forward, put your leg down. My husband was actually holding my hand as we were walking. And it took a long time for me to get that. So it was a normal movement for me again. And then I realized I had to move my arm because it wasn't moving there. So it's like forward, back, forward, back. So again, it took a long time before those things became a normal movement for me. But I think that over time, if you're gritty enough, you do it over and over and over. And finally, it comes back to you. It took me, so I had rehab until the end of August of 2014. And then I had someone who worked with me for a year on my movements so that I had that physical therapist who said, okay, that's how the left side does it. Now 
have the right side do that because it needs to be even. So if you show the right side how to do it with your left side, it comes more easily. You talk about crossing the midline. That was something that when I worked with students, mm-hmm. I had them do. I had them do like a windmill where they took their right arm and touched their left toes Mm -hmm. and they took their left arm and bent over and touched their right toes just did exercises with them to take the right side of their body over to the left and the left side to the right and I felt like from an educator standpoint that that was helping the two hemispheres of the brain communicate the best they can yeah I was happy to see that you did that in your physical recovery as well. Yep. Some educators thought it was foo-foo stuff that I was doing, but I really believe in that crossing the midline and the hemispheres talking to each other. I think that is vital with any kind of brain dysfunction, whether it be learning differences or the body's healing as with you with your stroke. I can't say enough about physical therapy and the woman I had for a year cheering me on actually. And she gave me the right moves, if you will. But she also supported me emotionally. So when I went into her office, time after time after time, I would cry. And it wasn't necessarily that I was sad, or I knew what I was crying about. But I, I didn't have a way to express myself. She just let me cry. And having someone just let you be and sharing it with you is really important. I have worked with a number of therapists, speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and I have seen the care they have for their clients, my students, have the utmost respect for each one of them. It was it was uplifting to see you receive that care. Oh. And when you had someone working with you that you didn't feel was a comfortable fit, you had the courage to say, I need to have a different therapist. That is so important for everybody to take away that if you have to have that mindset of being able to cry and not be embarrassed about it and have that person understand that is as much a part of healing and therapy as working the muscles and learning to make your foot not drop and not droop when you're trying to walk and to have the courage to say, this isn't working for me. I need a different therapy. Kudos to you. I had so many good therapists that I had a a couple that I didn't get along with all that well. By and large, we have so many good therapists in Northern Virginia. They don't get enough credit. I want to step back for a second. And at the introduction, I gave a picture of what your stroke was. But can you give us statistics on the number of people who have strokes and why yours is so different from the quote normal stroke? Of course, 795,000 people have a stroke every year. My stroke is unusual because it was in the carotid artery. It's called the carotid artery dissection. Only one to 2% of stroke survivors have this kind of stroke. For me, it was weird because my cholesterol was normal. 
I was healthy. I was running three or four times a week. I had no clue that there was a stroke in my future. <laughs> and I'm going to say that hopefully nobody else has a stroke. And of, of course, that's not true because there are some out there that will have a stroke. But 80% of strokes can be prevented by taking care of yourself. That means eating healthy, not smoking, not drinking much. So I think if you are concerned about whether or not you are in line to have a stroke, there are some things that you can do to make it less. You can reduce your, your risk factors by yeah. changing some habits. Yeah. exercise, diet. And it's interesting how exercise is so good for the body, but it's also good for your soul. Because if you go out for a walk and look at nature and come back, you are uplifted by having been outside. A couple of the things that you wrote about in your book made me smile. Those were along the lines of what you're just saying. The first time you drove in the car with your husband and the top was down and you could feel the wind in your hair and the breeze on your face, or when you rode your bicycle or when you did go out and walk. Tell us about those events. So the first time I drove my car was in August of 2014, and I had no clue whether I would be able to drive or not. I mean, I knew that I had the cognizance to drive, but I didn't know if I would be able to take care of the gear shift. <laughs> I got in the car. I tried to put it in reverse and there was a no-go. I just couldn't put it in reverse. So I reached over with my left hand. I put it in reverse and I backed out. And it's like, okay, well, I can always reach over with my left hand for reverse. But can I put it into first gear? And it was painful, but I did it. And I drove around the neighborhood and it was so fun. I was almost normal again. The breeze was blowing in my hair. I could smell honeysuckles or something. It smelled so good. The birds were chipping. It was great. My husband said I could drive four miles, not on the highway. And if I had to go to a doctor and he's out of the four mile range, that would be okay. But I had to stay off interstate. It, it was like a release for me. I could go wherever I wanted, kind of within reason. The second thing that I did was the bicycle. I had this bike and my husband had it down at the end of the driveway and he let me try to get on. I couldn't get on because my right leg wouldn't go high enough. So I tried it again and my leg did go over and I started pedaling. I was like a kid learning how to ride their bike again. It was uneven, but I tried pedaling anyway, and it worked. I went up to the end of the cul-de-sac, and I took a big swing around. I pedaled back. I thought I was going to maybe fall, but I didn't. So when I got back to the house, I tried to climb off again, and again, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get off, but I did get my leg over. And I felt so proud because <laughs> I'd only gone two blocks, but I did it on my own other than the beginning where my husband hold, held, held the bike up for me. But that was like, I could be myself again. I could just picture your smile. My grandsons are at the age where they're just learning to ride bikes. I remember their faces and I have a picture of 
my now six-year-old grandson and he's riding the bike and it's just pure joy. I just was so happy to read that, that you experienced that. It's a miracle. You don't realize how much you miss something until you can't do it. I think your being here on this podcast today is a miracle, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want you to talk about something that I found a little amusing, and it seemed that your therapists were not as amused as I was, (laughs) and that was (laughs) early in your rehab when they asked you to count, and instead of counting in English, you counted in Norwegian. How did that come about? Tell us about that. So I went to Norway when I was in college. I learned to speak Norwegian because that's the only thing they speak there. Well, they do speak a little English, not in my school. When the nurse asked me to count to 10, I thought, I can do this in Norwegian. Piece of cake. And I did. And she was angry at me because she says that Speaking in a foreign language takes their ability away from speaking in English. I don't really get that, but I remembered how upset she was. And so I've only spoken English since then. That day, Jim was so happy because he knew that I was going to come back. I had the audacity to speak in Norwegian. Speaking a second language is important. And my observation with my students, because in Virginia, you have to have a foreign language credit or two or three to be able to graduate from high school. The parents of my students who have learning disabilities and IEPs were like, my student can barely read and write in English. How are they going to pass a foreign language? My observation is taking a foreign language often helps in your native English language, and the kids seem to do very well. So I would think that your ability to count in any language was your brain saying, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. And in the recesses of my brain, it it works. I'm going to go forward. And this is my first step. So I would have applauded that. Well, thank you. (laughs) When did you start counting in English? They made me try. You know, it's interesting because I actually didn't say all the words in English. I hadn't really thought about that until now. So I had no problem in Norwegian, but I did have some problem with English. Isn't that funny? You mean actual conversations? Yeah, because remember, I had a practice and aphasia at that point. I couldn't actually say everything that was on my mind. Could you communicate in Norwegian? Could say. Well, it's like and to tre. They're really easy numbers to say. <laughs> but you and weren't actually conversing in Norwegian. You were counting. I was just counting. You mention in your book about under this take action, about keeping a set of medical records. When a good friend of mine was going through cancer treatment and we knew that it was probably not going to turn out in his favor. One of the things that I did for him was to keep a notebook of all of his treatments, test results, because he participated in a number of clinical trials. So we filled one notebook after another. And I read in your take action 
that keeping a set of medical records with your history and your medication and all the supplements, that that is really important and advanced directives and insurance information. How did that help you transfer from one facility to the next? We actually are just now putting our all those things into place and we got a lawyer to do it. So I asked at the hospital what, and this is years after the stroke, what what I should do if I wanted to have any of those documents done. And she said, oh, we do have, and I can't remember the name of it, but they probably got a DNR and things like that. So at the very least, you should talk about the DNR and things that you might want to have put into place with a loved one. You should definitely have a copy of your records and the list of medication that you're on and any supplements that you take. Because when I had my stroke, I had nothing in the house, nothing. We went to the hospital and the nurses asked, well, what is she on or when is the last time that she was in for surgery, things like that. My husband didn't know. So they had to cobble things together. And it worked for us because we are in Northern Virginia. You and I talked about this briefly before we started recording. I was (laughs) quite surprised, actually astonished is the better choice of words. You had such difficulty in Northern Virginia where there is a plethora of medical centers, Mm -hmm. you had difficulty going from inpatient to rehab to outpatient. And what upset me by that is those early weeks are so crucial to recovery following a stroke, but there was a lag time between when you were able to access those facilities. Yeah, it was two months before I could get in for outpatient. And you know, the interesting thing is that I exited the rehab hospital and I had six weeks of home health care. They always say interesting things about home health care. Let me tell you the speech therapist that I had was so awesome. She was probably the best speech therapist I had my entire time. And I went through five or six of them. You never know what you get through home health care. You might have somebody who's a magician at what she does, or he does. Outpatient care started two months after I got out of rehab, and it lasted for two months. I noticed when my insurance stopped paying for it, I really wasn't healthy yet. So I worked with a physical therapist for a year. And in that time, I learned to really walk forward, really walk backwards. I learned to hop and skip. You know, you don't think about doing those things, but hopping and skipping, those are big things because I couldn't make my right leg hop at all for a long time. Moving backwards, just doing an exercise where you move backwards It takes a long time to get your muscles moving again. It took, I'm going to tell you forever. It didn't, but it it seemed to take forever before I finally seemed like I was walking normally, frontwards, backwards, sideways, you name it. It took a long time. 
there were a couple of things that helped you along during this period. And it, it's interesting that in the perspectives and the take action, you have things uh, that the therapy notes really addressed safety, how to keep you safe. And mm -hmm. one therapist was no knives. Another <laughs> therapist after a while was use a knife. And then your husband bought you something because he, he again, ever the protector, was concerned about your using a knife. Can you tell us about that? Yes, he bought gloves that are apparently knife proof. <laughs> and I'm laughing because- I actually need those. Well, he got me some more for Christmas last year. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently I don't use them enough. <laughs> Apparently, I should use them every time I use a the knife. They are, I don't know, they must be Kevlar or something because you cannot cut through them with a knife. I am grateful to him because I probably would have cut off a thumb or a finger or something like that without them. And I, I want to tell listeners that there are a number of aids that help people who have impacted brain injuries, whether again, it's somebody, you know, like you recovering from a stroke, things that I found that were useful for my students who had learning differences. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire industry around those. So I'm going to list some of those in the show notes. Okay. And then if there's anything particular you want to add to that list, just let me know. But I think it's important to know that there are, and, and you don't even have to have a brain impairment to benefit from some of these things, because yeah. I find that it's hard to open jars sometimes, but this one particular company has this amazing jar opener. There it is, magic. Yeah. But another thing that you used during this time were CDs that you bought online right. to help you learn Tai Chi and yoga to supplement your in-home health. Unlike my speech therapist, some of my other therapists weren't so good. I bought these CDs so I could use them to exercise with. They were really good because you can exercise on a chair if you need to sit down or you can exercise holding onto a chair if you're standing up. And there were really good exercises for me to do while I waited for the outpatient care. The interesting thing is that I noticed while I'm doing these exercises that I was really off kilter. But I think the thing that's most important is that whether you're off kilter or not, the important thing behind exercise is actually the movement. And so as long as you're getting the movement in and you're sure that you're not going to fall down, do it. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting down, standing, or whatever. It just matters that you move whatever you can move. The longer that you hold yourself still means that you're not actually getting neuroplasticity going. In order to have neuroplasticity help you, you have to do something over and over and over and over. And I'm saying it can take years. If you believe you're going to get better, that means that you believe you are going to work out every single day. And believe me, there are some days I did not want to work out, but I did anyway. I wanted to get back to the point where I could do everything I'd done before I had my stroke. It was five years after my stroke and 
we were at the lake and I get into my kayak and paddled away. My husband told me that is the first time he'd seen me paddle like I was before the stroke. It only took five years, but I did it. For people who may not know, I mean, we talked about crossing the midline. And we also spoke about my friend who emphasized the absolute repeating of this muscle memory. Tell people what neuroplasticity means. Neuroplasticity is you thinking or doing a behavior again and again and again for a long time. Because you do it so many times, it becomes a thick web. So you can do that kind of naturally without thinking about it. If you stop doing it, that thick web that I talked about will go away and it will be paired back and you won't be able to do it. Or if you do it, you will have to try very, very hard to do it. That makes a lot of sense. And that helps me understand more why my friend was saying it was imperative as she was lying there to move those muscles, if nothing else, just in her mind so that her brain was developing and and regenerating those those neurons it's also important for people to understand we actually on an everyday basis use a very small percentage of the brain Mm -hmm. and that the brain has this remarkable ability to compensate for losses and Mm -hmm. it can develop other circuitry And that's kind of what we spoke about before. And you mentioned a book called Neurosculpting, A Whole Brain Approach to Heal Trauma, Rewrite Limiting Beliefs, and Find Wholeness. And I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes. I have been fascinated by brain research for a long time, and I believe so wholeheartedly in a positive attitude. And in your book, you called it a growth mindset. And you said it takes a lot of effort to do that and to have that kind of attitude. It does. I think I didn't really think about negativity at all. I mean, I will be honest and say there were times when I felt down, but I didn't feel down day after day after day. I shifted out of negativity mode and thought of positivity instead. Again, I wanted to get back to 100%. And I still want 100%. It might be slow. I'm still going to try to get there. I applaud your determination and grit. I think it's incredible. There are a couple of things that I wanted to address before we actually say goodbye. (laughs) I said earlier that some teacher friends and other people often thought my crossing the midline activities and exercises was a little hooey. And you address this in chapter eight of your book when you talk about medical alternatives. Can you just kind of give us a summary of some of the things you did? And do you really think they helped you or were any of those like, oh, probably not, but I'm going to just do them anyway? I will talk about two therapies that I had. The one is laser therapy. And that's the laser is about the size of a large smartphone. And it goes up and he started off just putting it by my stroke area. And when he did that, I had five minutes and he said, now I'm going to have you do something called the cross crawl. And I'm going, okay, what is that? And he said, 
it's where you put your right arm and left leg up and I'm laying on a table. He said, you put your right arm and left leg up all the way, and then you switch and your left arm and right leg come up all the way. And you just switch them up, okay? Doing the cross fall and I'm going, I don't believe I'm doing this, but okay. So I did the cross crawl for five minutes. He said, okay, we're done. I'm going. That lasted a very short time. Did it really work? And I'm going to say the answer is yes. So I started speaking better that day. Now I went to him over, well, I'm still going to him. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I went to him for a few months and it was August. And I said, I'd been to this meeting. I realized that my therapy had stopped working. And he said, okay, I will try something different next time. He tried something called um, the Alzheimer's method. And, and Alzheimer's is my, my name, not his, but he, it's used for treating Alzheimer's patients. And so he treated the top of my head, the sides of my head, the front and the back. I found out that I was getting better again. I got 40 to 50% better. And then it stopped. Now, I tell you that I'm still doing the Alzheimer's method because I am afraid being a stroke survivor that I will get Alzheimer's. I have a 25% more chance of getting Alzheimer's because of the stroke. Another subject is that two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients are women. I don't know if it will prevent me from getting Alzheimer's, but I'm hoping it will. So that was two years after I had my stroke. Three and a half years after I had my stroke, I had a doctor tell me that I should try something called microcurrent neurofeedback. And he said, go home and research it and tell me if it's worth it. So I go home, use the URL, and started reading. And I couldn't believe what the website told me about it. So they treat ADHD anxiety, all sorts of things. But the most important thing I read was that 85% of traumatic brain injury survivors get better when they have this microcurrent feedback. I went, okay, I would be foolish not to try it. So I went in and <laughs> again, it's a little bigger than a smartphone, wires to his computer, and it has five electrodes that come out and attach to your head. He has a sticky substance that I like to call cat spit because it's kind of gritty and it's wet and it's cold. Puts the cat spit on my head, puts the electrodes on, and he turns it on and I felt nothing. I'm going, okay, what is this? It has a one one hundredth of a triple A battery that's pulsing in your brain and I couldn't feel it. But when I left his office that day, I noticed that I could speak better. And after 16 sessions, I could speak without aphasia. I could say exactly what I'm thinking. Is this still considered experimental or does insurance pay for this? Oh, insurance doesn't pay. The sessions are $100 a session. So it's $1,600 for me. But I think it's worth it. If it's helped your aphasia, absolutely. 
there are 15% of traumatic brain injury survivors that don't get help. Clearly, there's some portion of stroke survivors won't get help either for whatever reason. If 85% of stroke survivors, I'm sorry, traumatic brain injuries get better, I'm thinking that there's a correlation and a large percentage of stroke survivors will also get better. So it's at least worth trying a few times. Chapter nine, I think it is. One of the passages I read talked about your friend Rochelle. And from her perspective, she said that the first time that the two of you got into the car to go to one of your business meetings, she filled the airspace with a lot of chatter. She didn't know how to be around the new Marsha. Throughout the book, you've talked about the importance of being around people who lift you up and who inspire you and who encourage you to get better. Did you find a lot of people are not comfortable with the new Marsha? A lot of people who've had strokes say that they don't have their friends anymore. I have all my friends. Most of them are close like they were before. Some of them have kind of drifted away. So they're, I'm going to say my B-set rather than my A-set. People care about the stroke survivor. They just don't know how to deal with her. My husband made it very clear that people could see me, but he said when they could see me. So people could see me. Maybe I had two or three friends in the first three months, and then I could see another two or three. So people got to know me again slowly over time. And I think that the friendships that I had were very close to begin with. So some of my friends I've known since I was a child. Some of them I've known for 20 years, you know, so I've, I've had these friendships a really long time. But you also have new friends. You've met them through Toastmasters or through your business referral roundtable. Yes, I do. And those are important friendships too. They are important friendships. It's interesting because I have my pre-stroke and my post-stroke friends. So it was really interesting that the people who I've met through Toastmasters have been very supportive of me. And in fact, they are now starting a group for people who have problems speaking. So people with Parkinson's disease, people with aphasia. So I think it's really interesting to see how much Toastmasters has grown as a club or as a, a, an organization, because I didn't believe that anything like that was possible. And yet it is. I introduced you by telling people what happened with the stroke. Okay. And we started, you know, talking about some deficits and, you know, we've, we've come along with your journey. I am just so impressed with the fight and the grit and the determination. And there are two things that I want you to address before we, we end this. One is that you have returned to a love of painting and also you are a role model for people who have speech difficulties and recovering from strokes. 
and talk about the impact you made on your nephew, Scott. He is someone who's very quiet. When he read the book, he said that he wanted to write for me. (laughs) Okay, I guess that's fine. It wasn't until I read what he wrote that I actually understood what he thought. So do you mind if I read a couple sentences? Go right ahead. I was shocked to hear Marcia had a stroke. She was a great comfort to me when my brother, grandmother passed away, and I couldn't stop imagining the worst. How could this happen? She was too fit, young, and active to have a stroke. Now her life and Jim's life would be forever changed. I'm grateful Jim was there for her when it happened, and have no doubt he's contributed greatly for her recovery. I didn't really know I impacted him through my mom's illness, but he took my stroke and actually went on a safari. He decided to do something that was important to him, no matter what it costs or whatever. He was going to do the thing that he wanted. And I'm really proud of him. You don't know when your last day is. And you should enjoy every time that you've got. Life is precious. And it truly is a gift. It really is a gift. Well, on that note, I think we should celebrate you and celebrate Jim and celebrate Scott. I wish you the best. And I look forward to hearing from you when you have reached 100% because I know you're going to do it. Well, thank you very much. And it was a pleasure being with you. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest, or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.